Hey humans, how's it going? Susan Ruth here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hey Human Podcast. On this episode, I spoke with Nikki Demur, and Nikki is a United States citizen by way of Havana, Cuba. And she tells uh, her extraordinary story of her time in Guantanamo, uh, her journey to Guantanamo. It, it's a crazy story. She talks about all sort of the politic of the time when she was growing up. Um, I don't know if you know the history of mass exodus from Cuba to America. Um, I've put a bunch of links on heyhumanpodcast.com so that you can have a reference point um, if you want to check those out before you listen or after uh, to this episode. Um, little background. Batista was corrupt. Uh, he seized power in a coup uh, and was considered by the uh, Cuban people to not be legitimate. Uh, they weren't real thrilled about his policies. They weren't... Um, they saw him as a puppet of the United States, um, and Castro uh, came in. He overthrew Batista. He promised uh, to give Cuba her independence, and he was this man of the people and all that stuff. And then, of course, um, then he became a communist. So, uh, hence the mass exodus. It's a fascinating story. I do encourage you to to learn about it if you don't already know about it. Um, there's only so much our ninth grade history classes teach us, I suppose. So anyway, uh, Nikki tells the story of her experience, and it's fascinating. Um, I'm really I'm really uh, honored that she that she shared her story on Hey Human. Um, yeah, it's it's wild when I when I hear stories like this. I think, <clears throat> gosh, could I have endured some of the things that 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 people have had to endure? Refugees have had to endure. Um, do I have the wherewithal, the skill, the <laughs> fortitude? Such a crazy experience. Anyway, so that being said, um, Nikki and I sat down, had a great conversation. I hope you enjoy it. Um, I think you will. Uh, a lot of stuff going on. I have a really exciting thing coming up this weekend, uh, which y'all will know about after the fact. So I got to do it first. Um, but I'm really excited to share it with you. How's that for a secret cliffhanger? Um, it's not really a cliffhanger, I guess, because you have no story to hang from. But suffice it to say, it's very cool and I'm really excited. Um, anyway, uh, the usual stuff, of course, heyhumanpodcast.com for all your Hey Human podcast needs. And uh, there's a donate button on that page. Uh, you know, I do, this is a one woman show, and any support is greatly appreciated. And that even comes down to just even going to iTunes and rating and reviewing. Hey, human, I heard through the grapevine that it was trending on iTunes. So I'll tell you what, that made my day. Um, it's really exciting. Thank you, everybody, for listening and for spreading the word and um, for telling me people that you think I should talk with. Uh, Y'all have made some really wonderful suggestions, and there's some fantastic episodes coming. Um, on social media, as usual, you know where to find Hey Human Podcast. You just 
they're all out there. Um, Twitter, of course, it's Susan Ruthism. And uh, heck, I'm going to plug my music for a second just because why not? It's a, it's, I mean, I might as well, right? It's Susan Ruth is on iTunes and I have a bunch of records up there. Um, so if you want to check out my music, <laughs> please do. Again, it's on iTunes under Susan Ruth. I don't think people have CD players anymore. If you do, you can order a CD through SusanRuth.com. But, you know, it's a modern world. Anyway, uh, yeah, thanks for listening. Thanks for spreading the world. The world. Thanks for spreading the world. Thanks for spreading the word. And uh, you can email me, Susan, at HeyHumanPodcast.com, and I will happily respond. And, yeah, thanks for being you. Uh, We're all in this together, are we not? Thanks for being a part of this journey with me. And here we go. Let's just keep on rocking. Hi. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Thank you for being on Hey Human. No, thank you for thinking about me. (laughs) Yes, well, your story is such a fantastic story. Um, I thought, my gosh, it would be great to... To have you beyond, we met in uh, Bellingham, Washington, when I was there for a time, and um, I remember when you first told me the story of how you came to America. That uh, I was just enthralled by the story. It, it definitely has a lot of twists and turns. So I appreciate the fact that you're willing to talk about it. Yep, um, I was born in Havana, 1969, right in the middle of. Uh, um, I guess that revolution was really, uh, everybody was really involved into um, the process of going from um, capitalism to socialism, even though it happened in 59. Of course, it took years to um, to kick in. Um, it was a lot of um, scars of everything. I mean, there was no, a um, lot of food. Everything was rationalized, you know, the food, uh, there was not really um, anything that you could actually go and buy. But um, slowly, um, we started making friends with, back then, the Soviet Union. And um, all of a sudden, um, we, I want to say, we pretty much became a leash of uh, the Soviet Union. Everything that went into the country um, was Russian. They were giving us... Um, a lot of supplies and pretty much the only thing we were giving back that we had was um, um, sugar cane uh, and you know and um, not a lot of tourism back then um, and the other thing was just education so um, wait the, the you were able to give education to Russians or the Russians yeah they a lot of them came and um, and it was like a educational interchange. There was a lot, uh, even within the military, uh, a lot of schooling was done in Russia, uh, mainly, I want to say, uh, Ukraine. But um, there were other countries, too, that I remember, Moscow, I mean, uh, cities, Moscow, and other countries, Romania, Czechoslovakia, uh, a lot of uh, our careers in a university were studied in um in the Soviet Union back then that had all these countries. Uh, one of them actually was my brother. He stayed in Ukraine for like five years. Your father? 
My my brother actually. Oh, your brother. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, I pretty much um, you know uh, was raised in. Uh, it was really simple. Uh, we didn't have a lot of uh, you know uh, other other ideas from outside our world and the Soviet Union. So uh, we really didn't have a way of. Um, comparing what we have, what we had, and what anybody else had. I mean, I, I, we was had... Was it we more were, third world-like back then? Uh, it, it was, and at the same time, uh, of course, Cuba had this big issue in politics with the U.S. and um, actually did not allow any of our family members uh, to speak or to have any kind of uh, interchange with the families that they were in the U.S. So at the beginning, it was really strict. Um, families were, you know, pulled apart. You, you couldn't communicate with them. A lot of them uh, pretty much broke relationships. Um, and I, I want to say it was 100% uh, the Cuban government not wanting to... Um, to have any kind of a uh, relationship with the U.S. U.S. as we grew up was always, you know, the enemy. Um, I can think of, of uh, at least three big exodus that happened in Cuba. The one obviously was 59 when he came into power and all the people that actually had money in Cuba, in Cuba had to flee. I mean, they had to live. When he you took say over. he, you're speaking of... Uh, um uh, Castro, yes? Yeah, they, when he got into power, Castro, uh, to get rid of Batista, which it was believed to be just a puppet of the U.S., um, he took over all the rich people properties. I mean, he completely took over everything. And um, so these people fled. I mean, uh, a lot of them. And then uh, at the beginning, actually, they sent all the kids ahead of time, even kids that, um, you know, they, even people that didn't even have family. That's when the Peter Pan movement into the U.S. came. There were a lot of kids that came alone, and then the parents came back into, um, I mean, left Cuba and went, uh, came into U.S. Then um, 1980, uh, the revolution was... Uh, very strong. Um, there was no opposition. If it was opposition, um, uh, <laughs> it will end up very, very quickly. Uh, a lot of people, people went to would prison. People get killed, right? I mean, if you oppose. Um, to tell you the truth, uh, that information was never public. Um, we never knew of anything that happens to these people. We never knew. Uh, we knew that they will go into prison, but I personally never had an idea of what were ha what was happening to them. I do remember in 1980 when a lot of people started complaining because, it, you know, it, it, you had to live the way that they structure you to live. The government took care of everybody. I mean. Uh, you will get just, you know, you have a, a car to go to a store, grocery shopping was just whatever. It's exactly what's going through, uh, Venezuela is going through right now. I mean, I mean, you have to go to a store, you get a car, you can only get this much food. There's not really anything that you can buy in a black market because there's not a black market because you will get, 
you know, put into prison for things that are completely ridiculous. One of them was back then the U.S. dollars actually were illegal to have. If you were found with $10, you will probably go to jail for 10, 20 years. Oh, my God. And that, yeah, and then in 1990, I want to say 93, 92, 93, all of a sudden uh, Fidel uh, said, you know, dollars are okay, right? Now we can handle dollars, yet we are not uh, paying dollars. As a matter of fact, I was already a nurse in Cuba, and uh, my salary right out of nursing school, which was a five-year BSM program, was um, 213 pesos a month. That's not A peso, well, when this happened, that he said it's okay to have dollars in a black market, and then the peso, for 150 pesos, you could buy a dollar. <laughs> so we're talking about two, three dollars a month. Uh, but yet, you even if you had dollars, you couldn't just go into a store, the stores that uh, will take dollars that were destined for tourism. So you would actually have to try to meet somebody that was a foreigner, <laughs> ask them to go in a store, give them some money so they can buy, they could buy something for you. And even that, that was illegal. If they caught you, you were going to be in big trouble. Most likely would lose the money or end up in prison. Did you Same feel thing. like, was, I'm, I'm sorry, I just, I just don't want to lose this, this line here. Um, so in order to control a people, certainly controlling their food source is a great way to control a people. And you said that Fidel came in and took the wealthier people's homes away from them. And I mean, prior to this happening, prior to the movement of socialism from capitalism, um, did, like, did your parents, do you remember your parents saying like, oh God, now we're, things are going to get really bad, really ugly, or were people hopeful, or, I mean, how did... So, so like anything else, you have uh, capitalism, so the people that are poor are going to be happy, because he's going to hand over property that did not belong to him, and now he will give it to these people, right? Mm -hmm. He will divide the land of the people of... Uh, the, the workers, the farmers that could um, go and cultivate, right? But that land didn't belong to him in the first place. So the poor people actually uh, embraced this change. I mean, all of a sudden, we were all going to be equal. Uh, the whole uh, ideal Marxism was going to happen. We all going to be the same we are going to have access to the same, uh, we are equal, right? At the end of the day, we, we all going to have the same. Even if the same means uh, a piece of bread in a day and five eggs for a week, but we're going to be the same. Of course, at the beginning, I think it was, <sighs> the government was, uh, you know, so new, was pretty fair, but slowly, like anything else, the government started getting corrupted, right? So obviously they had access to things that we never did. Um, my family, um, the generation of my parents that were young when the capitalism was there, they embraced the socialism. They thought that was the greatest 
idea. Yet the parents didn't think so. Even my grandparents that were poor, uh, there was something wrong about it. Like, uh, you know, uh, everything changed all of a sudden. Uh, uh, talking about even holidays, my grandparents were used to Thanksgiving. They were used to Christmas. Then that went away. I never even knew any of it. Why? Because there was also the restriction to a religion, right? So he actually closed all the churches. He believed the, that... Um, pretty much if you didn't see God, and this was taught in a school, it didn't exist. So at school, we actually study Marxism, Leninism, uh, and we, we study all these theories of uh, communism and how the societies were different. And there is so much uh, madness throughout his 60-something years of power that um, I, I kind of feel that I'm, I'm sure and and driving you in different directions at no, the same okay. time. Yeah, it's good. But, but I remember growing up, I didn't know any better. I never knew any holiday that wasn't a revolutionary uh, Thai uh, holiday. I mean, the triumph of the revolution, the International Workers' Day, International Women's Day, that, you know, pretty much nobody here knows this because it's a socialism uh, way, right? Uh, and the schools, uh, there was no religion. There was no going to church. Um, nobody baptized their kids. Our grandparents, they were all kind of religious. You had to get rid of all images, you know, like my, I remember my grandfather, uh, my father telling my grandmother that he belonged to a communist party and she couldn't have uh, the last supper uh, picture that she had in the living room. Um, my grandmother had to take it down because my father was furious, right? So then in the 90s, people started getting, I mean, 80s started getting upset again and um, people, Fidel decided that uh, the Cubans that lived in Miami could start traveling again to Cuba, right? So now these people are bringing money, food, clothes, but not everybody has family in Miami. So I was really young, and that's when you started questioning, why don't we have these things? Why do they have nice, nice, nicer things? So everybody started wanting to leave the country. And the, the families that were in U.S. that had family in Cuba and had boats, they started coming and taking their family members with them. Uh, and Fidel all of a sudden agreed to this. But also I, what he did is that he opened up all the prisons in Cuba. And that's when you got that big exodus in 1980 from El Mariel, what you call here Marielitos, that uh, most of them end up in in. Miami, and a lot of them were people that were from prison or people from mental institutions, and kind of he got rid of the people that he didn't want there. Uh, to have an idea of anything that happened in a prisons there, you would actually have to know I have a family member that actually went through it because none of this was public. I mean, we had two TV radio, uh, two TV stations. The, the, there was nothing played that was not approved by them, right? And 
in the schools, for example, if you were to have a class where you will watch a U.S. movie, the purpose behind it was to, at the end of the day, pretty much uh, criticize the movie based on uh, what kind of uh, subliminal message the U.S. was putting subversive thoughts into our minds. So the brainwashing happens really, really early in life. Like when you go to school, you go to a big plaza, everybody is in formation, like a military uh, school, you have uniform, you actually have to salute the, the flag, you have to uh, sing the, the hymn and other other socialism, socialist hymns that they came out with. So, and, and, and every year will be, uh, this is, I don't know, uh, 1980, the whatever 20 something years of the triumph of the revolution. And you have to write all this. So the, the, the thing happens very slowly, but it's very deep and ingrained. Yeah, well, I mean, and, we in America do the Pledge of Allegiance every morning in our schools. Which also, by the way, says uh, under God. So in a way, that indoctrination is, is unilateral across, I think, the world. It's, it's just something that people do with children, perhaps, to well, yeah. shape them. It, it, it starts early, but this is the deal, is that um, it, it is great to love your country and to want to protect your country uh, versus um, not allowing people to have different opinions and uh, I mean, if you if you had any other opinion, Susan, you were taken down. That was not going against it, and, and to the point that you know we we didn't, we didn't have a lot of uh, uh, most of our transportation was public transportation, and then as a matter of fact, uh, in the late eighties, nineties, I mean, I remember having to go to work for miles and miles in a bike and whatever it's not for health reason believe me it's that it was nothing you had to do it that way because the, you couldn't get in a bus you getting nobody had a car uh there's no way of getting any parts there's there's not a you know home depot there's not a out of parts store that you can get anything if you had anything you stole it from the government if you were painting your house that, that we had uh in every Every single um, street, we had uh, a neighbor's watch. Well, that neighbor's watch will be watching you because if there's an, a Home Depot for you to buy paint, you're stealing from the government, and they're going to tell you. If your house smells like you have a steak and it smells good, everybody's going to know because there's no selling cows. There is no beef being sold at the store because there is none. So you are stealing. If you were a farmer and you had a cow, that cow had to be registered. If that cow died, you had to bring somebody to actually see that cow dead and have a death certificate for that cow. So even if it was theirs, it wasn't really theirs. Right, belonged to the government, yeah. At the end of the day, it did. The same thing with the land that they, uh, you know, uh, were working on, part of it, it wasn't fully theirs, you know. They, they, they had to do whatever they asked them to do. 
So in the 80s, I remember as a child, I had to be uh, 80s, I was probably 10, 11 years old. I remember that they will take you either from uh, that group, that neighbor's watch, or your school to uh, houses where the people in there were known to not being with the government and were about to leave the country when Maria came. And it would be like 50 people in front of those people's house yelling at them. You have a bunch of traders throwing rocks at the house. And I actually remember one of uh, my uh, mom's co-worker, um, somebody threw an egg at him and pretty much took his eye out. So I witnessed that. I saw that. And, um, and it's just sad to say, but I thought that that was normal. And we were supposed to do that. These were people that were not with the government. If you're not with us, you're against us. And there's no other way. So we were brought, this is another one. Every, uh, every uh, January 1st, which is what we took as the, his entrance, Castro entrance into Havana and took over the government, he will have, <laughs> this was insane, we have this big, huge plaza. And um, there will be no school that day. You will have to go in buses, and they will take you there, and you will stand up there in a open, open. The, it was so hot, nothing to eat, not even water to drink. And you have to hear his whole freaking speech every single year. And you know what is sad? I went to Cuba on April this past April, and they still do that. I was just completely beside myself. So, rich people were not happy with the government, poor people were happy with the government, until there was nothing to eat, because all of a sudden, the Soviet Union uh, fell with Gorbachev. Uh, so now we have nobody to support us. And when I mean supporting us, I mean that all our electrodomestics, whatever leader we have, they were all Russian. Soap, pads, clothes, everything came from Russia. Every single thing. I cannot even tell you anything. Oh, for a while, China. For a while, China um, uh, was one of the people we were trading with because China is a communist country. I mean, they can say whatever mollified they are, they're a communist country. That's just a given. So in the 90s, my generation uh, is getting out of uh, the university and is realizing that what are we going to do? We don't have anything. You can't even get be... basic medicines, feminine products. I mean, toilet paper was hard to come Oh, by. toilet paper? I, I can count with this hand how many times growing up. I left you when I was 24. I can count with this many hands how many times I used toilet paper. Wow. Okay? I mean, I'm talking about that you will go out to get newspapers just so you can wipe your butt. It's not even to read. There were many jokes made about it, like our butts were smarter than anybody because we were reading constantly newspaper. Uh, at the end of a school year, you didn't dump your, <laughs> your uh, notebooks because you had to rip the, paper, the pages and use them. It was 
insane. Um, we had no toothpaste. Um, you know, it's funny to see all this, um, you know, how this country is now going towards the natural. We were natural because we had no choice. We had to brush our teeth sometimes with uh, baking soda, if you could find baking soda. Uh, we had to, um, like, lipstick and things like that with things that we made. We made soap. I mean, talking about chemistry class, we, we were making soap, we were making shampoo because there was nothing, absolutely nothing. Um, so in the 90s, when my generation gets out of a university, we're like, so what do we do now? I mean, we don't have enough money to do anything or or get a house or buy clothes or nothing, nothing, absolutely nothing. And um, I was already, this was 1994 when I decided that um, I was leaving. Leaving was a, a, a difficult and weird situation because it just came out of nowhere. Um, I was at a friend's house and um, her neighbors were planning on leaving. So at that point, especially Havana, because Havana is the one that has the most, uh, um, how can I say, they're the ones that uh, have uh, or see or have more influence of other countries because pretty much everybody that went to Havana to study or, or to do anything, they went to Havana. So we knew that life outside Cuba was different but even the people outside Havana that lives in the countryside, they never see people. They did not. They were not used to seeing people from other countries, right? So they knew there was something better out there for them that they could do. And um, pressure started building up. It was like a pressure cooker living in Havana because a lot of people started doing things that you knew that were going to cause issues, like throwing uh, rocks to glass windows, and um, we used to have uh, we used to have nothing. We still have this um, small ferries that will go from one part of the port to another part of the port instead of having to drive. And a few people stole those little boats and took off to U.S. So I want to say after the second or third one. Uh, the Cuban government sank one of these boats full of people, including little kids that died. And you can look it up. And I don't even remember what kind of excuse was given. And that at that moment, uh, I was uh, already outside nursing school. I was working as a teacher, teaching nursing in the same faculty where I graduated from. Um, I was at a friend's house. And I knew the neighbors because I had happened to be at the delivery of the daughter, right? And they are like, oh, well, we have a boat. And we're thinking of leaving the country. Everybody, you could feel that there was another exodus. People knew that it was going to happen again. I don't know what it is. It's just it's that feeling of people being really sick of the government. And they just rather die in the ocean that have to deal with that anymore, right? So um, I said, well, 
I would like to live, you know, I don't, I don't want to be here. I mean, I don't make any money. I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't want to have any kids here. I don't want to have anything to fit myself. Well, and like Venezuela, uh, people in Cuba, I mean, there were people starving to death. I don't, I don't think people really realize, because, you know, it gets painted in movies and, and such that it was this romantic, full of music and art. And I... I, I there's a lot of truth to that. Because oh, no, I'm sure that there's a lot. Boy, yeah. did we make fun of this situation. Yeah, and oh, some absolutely. of the jokes were cruel. So, I mean, I'm talking about, uh, I remember one of the jokes was that, okay, Fidel is having a meeting with all the people in Cuba and say, okay, well, we all have to die for our countries tonight. And we're going to do that by hanging ourselves. Oh, wow. Uh, do you have any questions? And the guy traces the hand and say, do you provide the rope? we have to bring our own, you know, like it, 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 we knew. But I think one of the criticism that my, my parents' generation and my generation gets is that we didn't stay to fight. Well, this is the deal that when your government regulates your army, <laughs> as a tough spot to be. Uh, you have no access to anything, uh, and I mean nothing. And everybody's prepared. Even when you go to uh, university, you have to pass certain uh, schooling where you're taught how to shoot, how to throw grenades, how to defend your country, right? And and, and I have to say, I, I was very lucky because my family was never that poor. We always had something to eat, but I did meet people that didn't have anything on, on a daily basis. All they had probably was rice or beans, uh, uh, really nothing else. I remember uh, we became, in, in the late 80s, with the revolution, very uh, all the rations came back, right? Not only that, but we had power outages uh, 12 hours a day. So like every other day. That's the government uh, shutting off the power. Yes, yes. And, and so what happened is that if you dare to open that fridge, your mother will kill you because whatever was in that fridge was going to go bad. Um, especially back then, they started giving us some kind of a, they say that was uh, a ground beef uh, with soy. It was like soy with two pieces of I don't know what. But that thing, every time that the power went out, will turn green. <laughs> and we ate that shit. They, they, they are things that I ate that I wouldn't be able to tell you what they are, really, seriously. Um, so I said, you know, I, I want to go, uh, I want to go, what, what do I have to do to leave? And they're like, well, you know, we have this boat and we're trying to fix it. I, at this point, I never even seen the boat. I don't even know if this is true. But uh, if you give us some money, you know, we'll... You know, we need dollars and we'll be able to uh, fix it and we'll be able to go. So um, I, I, I got to my grandparents' house and my grandmother had visited Miami to um, see her daughter, my, my aunt. And she came back. She's like, you have to leave. You have no future in this country. You have to go. Right? And I said, well, you know, there's these people trying to leave, but I don't have anything. She's like, well, I have a little bit of money, and I, I brought a few stuff from, um, from Miami and sell it. So she gave me whatever she had. I mean, shoes, a rice cooker. And I just went in a corner and sold this stuff for 
dollars in um I, I think I, I remember getting like $100 back then. That was a lot of money, believe me. Um, and then uh, the people that asked me, you know, to join them, they did have ties to the church, believe it or not, even though that, that was very illegal. Uh, and um, I ended up asking a nun for a loan. I want to say it was $100. And without even knowing me, she kind of like, Give it to me, like saying, "Well, I can't say no." I don't think this is a good idea. I could see it in her eyes that she never thought she was going to see that money back. But I actually sold my bike and all the things that I had. I was able to give her her money back, so I was happy about that. So one night, all of a sudden, they're like, "Well, the boat is ready," and it's September first, nineteen ninety-four, and we're like, "Okay, so it's happening tonight." And who's going? I didn't even know. It was a 20-foot boat for 20 people. And when I say a boat, don't think about any boat here from a marina anywhere around here. I'm talking about just an old floating device <laughs> with a motor. <laughs> so um, we got, um, they're like, well, we have to uh, be in specific location by the beach. And we all get concentrated in this house. And this house, it just seems weird that it's 20 people. And this is so organized. So at the end of the day, it was organized by their own government. I mean, those were houses that were used to um, for intelligence and people undercover and things like that. And at around 3 in the morning, uh, we were like 40-something people. We walked in the middle of a street at nighttime, there was not, nobody, took us to the back of the house, and there were two boats, and they pretty much say, said, there they are. And like, you didn't even know what boat you belonged to, or they just, so I, I, I just got in a boat. I had not told my family I was leaving. Oh, wow. Nobody knew I was leaving. My grandmother knew that I was leaving, but she didn't know any details or anything, right? So she, she really didn't know when it was going to happen. I mean, she gave me the money, but months were by before this boat was ready. So anyway, we get into this boat. I only know a little bit my friend's neighbors that were the parents of her daughter was the one that I helped with the delivery, right? 20 people, um, the two boats took off at the same time. I don't remember seeing the boat, the second boat after that. All I know that we had a young kid in a boat. I want to say he was probably 10 or 11 years old. And um, it was by like 7 in the morning, I was really disappointed because I look up and the sun was rising over Havana and I could still see the whole Havana. Like, I mean, we haven't really moved much. And um, all of a sudden the water pump of the boat broke. Now it's getting, it's September, so the ocean is not really calm. And uh, all of a sudden we start having, we were start having waves were like 
10, 15, 20 feet. It was just up and down, up and down. And so everybody starts throwing up. Um, the, the captain of the boat started trying to fix the water pump to see if we could get out of there. Because at that point, I'm like, I'd rather, I remember saying to myself, I, I'd just rather die here than being caught here and brought back or having to go back knowing that there are people that knew that I was leaving because there will be no life after this. Literally, all my doors will be closed. I will have no job. I will be seen as... Um, Dissident. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, pretty much. So I'm like, I don't know what's going to happen, but I'm not going back. That, that was just in my head. And um, one guy um, realized that by heating part of the pump, the boat will continue going. So we, we were out in a, in a water for like, I want to say 10 hours. And everybody was just, like I say, throwing up everywhere. I had some supplies, so I, were, I was giving people some shots for the nausea and this and that. But, you know, it, that wasn't really going to help with the conditions of the weather. Then all of a sudden, uh, we could hear, we got far enough that we could hear the helicopters, brothers to the rescue from Miami, that um, I, I don't know if you knew, but um, brothers to the rescue was a group of uh, Cubans that got together and will fly and either uh, pick up people or advise um, the um, the the Coast Guard given look the location of where we were and I didn't know I knew people were leaving but I didn't realize that there were about thirty two thousand of us that took off and we we're all in the ocean in different times. So by September first, that's when we left, that's when Clinto declared that nobody that did not make it to U.S. will come in. They will have to be held somewhere else. President Clinton, Clinton said Clinton. that whoever arrives has to be detained. Uh, if you made it to land, you were okay. But then after the first, you were going to ta be taken back to Guantanamo Bay. Guantanamo Bay is the U.S. base that it, it has always been an issue between Cuba and United States where, you know, Cuba says that that belongs to them and U.S. says that they have a contract with, I mean, from years and years prior. So we see that they're stealing. They see it as we had a contract. Uh, we don't owe you anything. This belonged to us. I'm so not, anyway. I'm, I'm confused. So basically, if you if you were in the boat and you made it to the landline, you were okay. Before September 1st. Before September after 1st. And after that... If you, you were taken to Guantanamo regardless. Yeah. yeah. So what they had is uh, Brothers to the Rescue will make contact with you, drop down. I remember they dro dropped down uh, water and like lemons and t-shirts because a lot of them were just in some kind of a, I don't know, a boat or raft or whatever they were on, right? And um, get walkie-talkies and say, you know, uh, we're going to help you. We're going to advise uh, the Coast Guard that you guys are around here. Just stay here. There's a, 
a couple of guides in a rafter behind you if you can get to them and bring it with you but if you cannot just you know whatever so i remember be taken uh by a coast guard so there were coast guard i'm sure all over in the strait of florida and between cuba and florida and they were picking up everybody um I want to say in the Coast Guard that we got in, we were probably 100 people, 150. So when you first get there, you know, uh, everything is taken from you because, you know, they don't know why you're bringing in guns or whatever. You're not allowed to bring the little food that all this time you were saving for the trip. Now it gets dumped and uh, the boats get sunk. Right. And you get in and, um, you know, they pretty much take care of you, feed you, give you water. And I remember in the middle of the night, they just took us in one of those Zodiac little boats to a a bigger um, boat. Uh, We were about 3000 people in that boat and that boat like sits in the middle of the ocean. So. Uh, I was there for like three days and you get in and, you know, you were giving a pillow, a blanket, uh, pretty much three or four meals a day, which we had never seen that in all. <laughs> and, um, are you scared? I but, mean, you're a young man. Uh, you are kind of scared, um, but you can see how controlled they have the situation. But now you're with 3,000 people that you probably know one or two. You have to sleep on a floor. You really are not told where you're going. I mean, we had an idea that we, we're going to get sent to Guantanamo Bay. We, we we pretty much had that idea, but nobody that you could certainly talk to that will give you information. You know, when you're dealing with the military, there's so many levels, uh, you know, mm-hmm. that, that they just say, you know, we're going to be here f- until they told us to, um, n- you know, that we have to move. So, but they... I think they made everything possible to, um, you know, feed us and take care of us. So of course, I don't think they were re- prepared for 32,000 people. And even in that boat alone, there was 3,000 people. We're all sleeping right next to each other. We don't know who they are. Uh, the bathrooms are made up toilets. And, and, you know, if you look up, there is a guard looking down to make sure that in that toilet, nothing is going to happen. And, and I see their point of view, but I couldn't even go to the bathroom when there's a guy standing up looking down to see if I'm doing something that would harm the rest of them. Right. And so, um, after three days, you know, you, you could feel the boat moving and we're sent into Guantanamo Bay. We got there really late at night and, you know, you're formed in line and as you pass by, now they give you a bunch of supplies. I mean, you get a bucket with uh, a blanket and sheets and soap and shampoo, conditioner, and pretty much uh, the tent that I ended up going to was a tent for 30 people. Oh, you get given a cot too so you open your cot 30 people have to fit there in that tent so you're sleeping right next to somebody that you don't know um did they the, segregate it by um sex so the females so so what happened is that eventually they had to to avoid and i'm sure us had a lot of uh 
experience with refugees. So um, what they did is uh, whoever was not in a familiar, in a family group, mm -hmm. uh, there was a camp for only men. So the men were put in one camp and the rest of them, not everybody, it, it, you know, as a refugee, ingenuity kicks in and, and they have no way of proving anything. I could say, you are my sister. He is my brother. There's no way of proving anything. We don't have any documents. U.S. and Cuba don't share any kind of information that they would ever know who we are. And, and that's exactly what happened. And I don't know if you ever watched the movie Green Card. And it was exactly like that. Once we got there and um, we sat there for so long between, because of the politics between Miami and D.C., um, definitely Miami did not want all these um, people coming in at the same time. So they decided that um, even though they didn't tell us, it, it was pretty painful to live in a camp. I mean, you were sitting all day long doing nothing. Uh, we have no news from anybody. We are eating MREs three times a day. MREs, uh, the government food. Yeah, the, the military, a meal right. straight to eat that the military gets. And uh, the camps, what they did now, they put us uh, all over the, the golf course that they have in Guantanamo Bay. And uh, there were many, many camps, enough to, to have 32,000 people there. And the camps had... Uh, uh, the, the, the number of tents could vary, you know, uh, based on how big the area was. And they're all, you know, chicken wire, so you couldn't get out of there. And um, so you would get up, and there, there was nothing to do. Uh, at the beginning, we didn't even have showers. You had to take uh, showers. Uh, they would bring a pipe with water, a tank of water. You get a bucket and had to go into those plastic Porta parties and and uh, that are filled with shit to the top. You have to close them and just throw water. Uh, you have no clothes, so you either, if you're lucky enough to have a a, a second pair of shorts or whatever, but uh, if other otherwise you'll have to make friends with somebody that did, and you wash one, and the other one will use the other one, and, and so it became we were back into being in Cuba, right? But at least we had water. Uh, there was still hope that we would come into U.S. We just didn't know how long that would take. And um, we pretty much had meals. We didn't have to worry about it. But like anything else, you know, refugees started trying to find a way. How do you entertain all these people, right? So sometimes they, 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 there were some camps that they will put movies. Uh, then a lot of people from Miami started coming in, doing concerts. Then all this war relief organizations started bringing in clothes and, and then you were able to, to wear something else and they started making showers. And uh, to tell you the truth, 1994 Exodus was a little bit different because most of the people that were leaving uh, were professionals. Uh, mm -hmm. People that have been physicians, architects, nurses, surgeons that had to uh, pretty much leave their careers to become butchers or drive a cab because you would make more money doing that than living out of uh, what a physician gets in Cuba. 
right? right? So it's a lot of professionals there. So there wasn't much crime going on. And on top of that... Um, there was not much crime. No, no, not at all. And then on top of that, you had the men separated. Um, I don't remember ever having uh, or heard anything really bad happening. They also had clinics where people had chronic disease or if you were sick for the day, you could go to, you would go just to the front of the camp. And, you know, of course, most of us with very limited English at that point, and a lot of people did not, but somehow the communications happened. Uh, The U.S. government actually... um, at, at the beginning, when I, we got there, the Navy was the one that was in charge of us, and then it was the Air Force, and then it was the Army, and they would rotate. And um, there were psychiatric clinics with real psychiatrists taking care of the people that were sick there. Um, I started volunteer in a clinic as a nurse, so I got to, every day, go to work, right? Uh, it, I mean, the payment was just to have ice. I mean, we're living in the middle of Cuba on a tent. It's really, really hot. Uh, so even having access to ice was a privilege, right? Um, but also started talking to the soldiers and, you know, um, they wanted to learn Spanish. We wanted to learn English. That relationship, like anything else between humans, starts and... Um, so some of them just became friends for years and years. I mean, there's still people that I I talk to or Facebook or whatever from them. Uh, we learn a lot. I mean, some of them we we some of them had surgery there. I mean, they had all the conditions to take care of us, and I think they did a great job. It was hard for us because every year when we woke up, if somebody had a radio, somehow. I don't know how they got it radio, but some people did. There would be news uh, from Miami. Oh, they're all coming in, and everybody will wake up. Oh, my God, we're going, we're going. And then the following day, no, they say we're not going, and they're going to send us all back. And being used to Cuba, where good or bad, the news are real. (laughs) We weren't used to seeing... uh, two, three different stations that will say the same or different things at the same time. Yeah. So who do you believe to? We weren't used to that. I mean, we were used That's to the that. the American way. <laughs> yeah, we were used to that. If Fidel said, we're going to kill everybody today, that was what's going to happen. Yeah. You better believe it. It was, that's the official uh, body of a government saying that this is what we're doing today. So it must, it is true. Huh. So for us, that was hard, especially for guys, especially guys that were in uh, in the camps by themselves with, with our, you know, families, though it was really hard for them. A lot of, a lot of them actually escaped and, and went back to Cuba. So in Guantanamo Bay, there's an area that is completely mined. And it's only uh, one, I want to say, a walkway that um, you can get into Cuba, but you'll have... It's like a, like a frontier. Like you have guards on each side and in the middle is all mine. There's some people that walk through the mine camp and just freaking die. And some of them made it back to the camp when they realized this is more dangerous than trying to go back to Cuba. Um, they, they're still people 
that had contracts uh, from Cuba, from Guantanamo, into the base, like cooks. All cooks that used to work in restaurants in, a, in a Guantanamo Bay, in a base before uh, it became a political issue, were allowed every day to pass. But it's only few, so and they're well known, and it's just a special situation. But anyway, they they decided that okay, we're all going to U.S., but it's going to happen very slowly. It is only going to be we're going to start doing interviews, immigration interviews, to prove that you are who you are, even though that was kind of impossible. So and how long had you been in Guantanamo Bay at this point? I was there for eight and a half months. Yeah. I was there for eight and a half months. I believe that the last person that left, it was a year. So most of us stayed there for a long time. So how we were able to get in is, uh, it was if you had medical parole, right? If you have medical parole, then you will get an appointment uh, with immigration office, you will go in. It will be just like a green card. They will have to sit down. If they were real family, no big deal. But if it were fake family, they had to know everything. They had to know uh, who set the alarm for the next day. What side of the bed did you sleep? What color was the kitchen? Where was the washer? Um, when you got married, uh, where do you go in your anniversary? Whatever you, you, we will study for hours at nighttime. If you had decided that let's pretend that we are family and let's try to get out of here. I have a parole. Let's try to get all together and go. And after that, then you have to wait until you were put in a flight. There was only a hundred people flying on a weekly basis. And we were 32,000. So what people started doing, especially men, I, I was, um, it, it, it was uh, interesting for me to notice, and I'm sure many of us noticed, how women were a lot stronger than men. I saw many men crying, wanting to leave. Um, I saw them doing terrible things to get a parole. I saw people putting um, gasoline in their legs to get a medical parole and losing their limb. I saw people running into a dumpster to get a head injury to be medevac. Oh, my God. To, to Jackson Memorial Hospital and die. I remember people getting burns from, they would take the, the MREs uh, that we were giving were in a, plastic wrapper, they will burn that and pour it over their arms to have a burn. Uh, there were guys that somehow will get um, syringes and needles and saline and will inject their testicles to get varicocele and get medical parole. I saw guys sticking pieces of wood up their butts to get hemorrhoids so they will get a parole to get in. So that's the conditions we were in. Um, I, I, I think psychologically it was worse than anything else because the rest we were pretty much prepared <laughs> because we never had much. So that wasn't a big 
deal, privacy. Uh, we really, I don't think in Cuba we really have privacy. Like, like, like there is privacy here. I, I don't think ever. Uh, our lives are much more open. Right. So that was a big deal. I remember changing clothes underneath a sheet around 40 people. I mean, it, yeah. was, it was a big deal to me. Um, Meanwhile, though, you were also falling in love, were you not? So, yeah, that was, uh, that was, that was uh, entertaining. Um, <laughs> so, uh, every time you work for anybody, they will try to get, to keep us entertained. Actually, we, we did a lot now that I think about it. I actually remember taking CPR courses there for free and becoming an instructor, a CPR instructor, to teach the rest of the physician CPR at the base because we were doing nothing. I remember using uh, all the, the labs at the Guantanamo Bay um, Naval Hospital. I mean, they were great to us. We had every possible thing to get entertained. Um, so one of the activities was, um, for example, immigration will take a bunch of um, migrants or refugees out for a day at the beach. And I just happened to go to one of them. And so we met four or five immigration officers there. And um, one of them is my husband now that um, that was, um, I'm sure this is um, going to be a much longer story. And uh, I, I, I don't know. But anyway, we, we had him, we got into a big, big, a lot of trouble because uh, of um, things that were going on within the immigration office, you know, jealousy and things like that. And um, I ended up uh, being accused of, um, or actually Daniel ended up being accused of uh, soliciting sexual favors from me, promising me that I will get out of the country, uh, out of the country sooner. Right. So you're the people that were in there out of jealousy and you're, you were actually developing a loving relationship with a guard basically. And you were considered a political prisoner of so sorts. So well, he's worse because he was an INS officer. Yeah. So this will be the people that, you know, if they wanted to say you're leaving in a flight this Friday, you could. I don't think that they were really corrupted or anything, but but we were accused that he was trying to get sexual favors from me, promising that I will leave, uh, I will come into Miami sooner, which wasn't true. But anyway, that that became um, I remember getting picked up uh, between the immigration office and. Um, there was a, a clinic that I used to volunteer to draw blood for immigration exams and they picked up by a couple of INS officers saying, hey, uh, we just want to talk to you for a minute and put in a, in a car and next thing I know I'm right in the middle of the, the, the shift of intelligence of uh, base and he has all my documents Needless to say, I had a fake family. I had a husband and a brother, which 
it was not true. It was my second cousin that I happened to meet there. So these are and, you had said that this is your husband, this is your... Yep. Yeah, okay. So now you're I'm, in sort of a trap because you've fallen in love with Daniel, but you also have pretended to have this family, including a yeah, husband. Yeah, exactly. I have this issue now because even though... And one of the things that Daniel realized... You know, at that point, we weren't really in any kind of relationship. It just happened that we met at the beach. And you know what, Susan, it's just weird how things happen in the world. But when I got to the camp that night, I had the slip. The next day was my immigration interview with my fake brother and my fake husband the day before. So that created a lot of talk between because the guys that did this actually were at the beach with us right and now all of a sudden i walked in the first person that i see is daniel he's like what are you doing here i mean he was completely taken back and i'm like well you know when you guys drop us off at the camp i have my slip that today's my interview so in daniel's head i have a brother and a husband right that's what happened. So he, your interviews are individual. So he interviewed the, the three of us. And he did mention to one of my friends that worked at the mail room that he knew that we were lying. But that didn't mean anything. Everybody was going to go. But he knew that Daniel that wasn't true because when he interviewed us, we gave different answers. Daniel knew this, you mean? Yeah, yeah. he did. He realized that interviewing us, right, that we were lying. And uh, so I felt bad. And I saw him later on, and I said, listen, I wanted to apologize. And he pretty much said, don't say anything. Like, pretty much, he didn't want to know anything. He, as far as he was concerned, we were going. And whatever our time was, was going to come. But we were going, even though he knew that we weren't related, right? So that's when the relationship starts, right? And that's, uh, it, it was already, for the people in immigration, a shock that I was there the day after, even though it's just a, a random, ra well, well, I don't think it was random at all. Right. Right? Right. I mean, it was just meant but for to people happen. that weren't, they, they just assumed that Daniel met you and then said, oh, yeah. I'm like, get this interview yep. really quick. They didn't exactly. know that you had been, yeah. Exactly. So next thing I know, I'm standing there in the middle of this, and the guy's like, we're going to protect you. I'm like, protecting me from what? You know? Oh, no, we know that there is a person that have promised you things, and, and you know, we, we're going to get to the, to, you know, to the root of this, and we're going to protect you. And I'm like, I'm losing it. I'm in the middle of this room. Uh, there's two two um, immigration officers there. There is the chief of intelligence of the base. And then I have two <laughs> Navy guys standing, two Marines standing right there. And I see myself and I'm like, oh, my God, I'm like in limbo here. I have nobody knows I'm here. My friends, my fake husband, my family, they have no idea what I am. I left in the morning, and now I'm here, and this guy is telling me, we're going to protect you. And these two guys are walking to me to grab me. 
by one arm, each one of them, and I'm kicking and screaming because I don't know what's going on, right? At that point, I really was not told much. So I was put in a van and pretty much drop off at the Navy station brig where I was in a cell. The brig? You got taken to yeah. the Navy brig. Wow. I'm in a cell. And in your experience from your country, that probably meant you were either going to be sent back or killed or something. Who knew? I had no idea what's going to happen. It, it was just like being in a limbo that I don't know what was going to happen. And at the same time, nobody knew where I was. And nobody was telling you anything. No. They were going to protect me. That's all I knew. And I'm like, protecting me of what? I want to be protected from you. <laughs> I don't want to be here. I mean, I'm against my will. I'm in a cell right now. I remember lying down in that bed with that toilet right next to it. Everything is metal. And I'm like, oh, shit, this is how jail looks like. And, and you know, the door locked and waking up in the morning and hearing all the, you know, uh, the guards just talking. Oh, there's a girl in there, you know. It's, uh, it's one of the refugees, and we don't really know what's happening, and I'm just listening. And I, I know they're sitting right outside my cell, and I'm like, oh, my God, I have to pee so bad. I don't even want them to hear me peeing, and I remember putting toilet paper so it wouldn't make sounds. It was just pretty bad, and, and I was there for, I want to say for two or three days when then they decided to bring in FBI. I mean, they made a big deal out of it. They FBI flew in, and uh, Daniel was giving a lie detector test. I was interviewed by the FBI, and um, and I'm like, I'm still stuck to my story. This is my husband. This is my my brother. And in after hours of interview. Um, that they let me go to a bathroom, I see Daniel, and Daniel, the only thing Daniel says to me is like, just say the truth. Tell the truth. And I'm like, oh my God, my brother and my husband are going to kill me, right? Because that means their parole is going to get fucked, right? So I'm like, okay, I give up. I did lie. It's not my husband. It's not my brother. We are somehow related. It's my second cousin, this and that. But I really didn't have, I didn't do what you, with Daniel, what you guys are saying I did. Okay? So they sent Daniel to Fort Lauderdale for a lie detector test. They released me to the camp. I'm sitting in the middle of a mail room just because I, 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 I didn't know what I was doing. And one of the INS officers comes back and says, listen, go to your camp, pick up your stuff. You are leaving tomorrow morning. So that means that you have to sleep. They will put you to sleep in a different camp the day of your flight. So I go to my camp, and I pretty much say, I'm leaving tomorrow. They're going to give me, they're going to fly me into Fort Lauderdale to give me a light detector test. So, of course, my cousin and his friend, they're about to kill me. So I, I leave. They take me to a camp. And um, uh, probably one of the worst nights in Guantanamo was because, you know, my cousin was so mad at me that he pretty much um, was able to make it all the way to the camp and stand up 
you know, on a wall that divided the camps and, you know, the whole night he was like, I kill you, you whore, you slept with everybody INS and now you fucked us. And now we cannot leave and we're stuck here. And it, it it was it was pretty bad. I, I was really scared that he was going to lose his shit and really harm me. So the following day, I ended up um, in a plane and taking into, uh, we flew into Homestead. And my aunt was actually waiting for me. And so was the FBI guy that had interviewed me in Guantanamo. And he said, you know, it's too late. I'm going to pick you up tomorrow at 7 in the morning to go have the, like, the tip to test. So the following day, he picked me up at my aunt's house and took me to Fort Lauderdale, and I stayed there all day long going through light detector tests. Um, uh, uh, the questions were very explicit. You know, they ask you anything. My advice is never take a light detector test because I'd really said everything that I did but um, the people that do these things are very narcissistic. And like one of the things that he will say is that I had never failed to, to, take, to, to get the truth out of anybody. I know you're lying. And I'm pretty much after like eight hours of this torture, I'm like, okay, what is that that you want me to tell you? That I befriend him and try to do sexual, take sexual, uh, uh, for him to to take me out of Guantanamo sooner? Is that it? He's like, yes. And I'm like, okay, I did that. I was sick of being Guantanamo. I think that by befriending him and pretending to like him and doing sexual favors to him was a way to get me here. Okay, that's it. That's the end of it. Uh, so basically, they're just waiting for you to tell them their truth, not yours. That, exactly. Yeah. And so... And I did, and it was really, uh, it was very explicit, Susan. Like, if we did have contact, which it was very minimal because there was, it's not like I can go into a house or into an office or anything. I mean, he touched my leg. If he touched between my legs, if you got wet, I mean, it was just very, very embarrassing. So... And then they just dropped me off of my aunt house, and I had never heard back from any of them. And for Daniel, I'm sure that was just. So the for Daniel, he could have stayed, but he decided to quit. Yeah. So he left, and after that, we we met in Guantanamo. I mean, uh, in Miami, and he picked me up, and uh, we pretty much been together ever since, which is going to be like 21, 22 years. Yeah, and so. he still hasn't touched you. <laughs> <laughs> I know your yeah. children, so. <laughs> it's, uh, it's been interesting, to say the least. What a, that, this, that is just, what a journey. It's incredible. Yeah. The, the fortitude that you have is just unbelievable. And you had to, did you have to recertify to be a nurse in the United States? Yeah, so uh, thank God I had a BSN and uh, I... I had, my graduation was in 92, that was very recent, so I had a, a lot of uh, credits, so all I had to do is take the, the boards for, the NCLEX, the boards for the nursing, and I was lucky enough to, to pass, and I have been working since uh, 98 as a nurse, so yeah. that 
that was uh, thank you for very grateful for that. that. Yeah, thank you for that. Thank you, Nikki. It's a heck of a story. It's just, I mean, do you? So now you go back to visit, and is that just so surreal? It, it was. Um, I actually, the first time I went back to visit, we were still living in Washington, and we flew from Vancouver to to Havana, and I did not tell my family either that I was going. So, um, so we showed up. And, and how long had it been since you had seen your family? Nineteen years. It's astounding. I don't yeah, think people uh, really realize that there's just truly a huge separation that happens. Mm-hmm. I mean, and you're talking about, it's not that I didn't see my friends. I mean, I'm talking about my mother, my father, my sister. Yeah. I mean, uh, really close uh, family. Yep. So that was um, 19 years. I was, um, it was sad to see that I really didn't see much change. People are still very poor, uh, even worse, because now, you know, we have this additional um, currency and, and it's not they they try to compare it with the dollar but it's just scam and and then nobody gets paid with that <laughs> so it's, my mom still have nothing I mean she's not a communist anymore but she has nothing yeah. I mean my dad the same thing as communist as he was he's living in a place that I mean there wasn't even his, his little place, it doesn't even have windows. I mean, it's just open, not even chairs. We had to sit down outside. And then I came back this year in April, and I do see a big change. I see a lot of private sectors growing. Uh, I, I can't wait to that to, to just explode. Uh, great food, great service. Um, same people, same nice people. Uh, people are poor, very poor, but at least I can see how uh, the private sector, I think, is going to make a difference because it's going to get the government to have to do better. Mm-hmm. So uh, even though, I mean, I'm, the taxes are ridiculous for these people, especially for us that we never even know what the taxes was. I mean, everything is owned by the government. I mean, it's just... You have no idea what that means. The hospitals, I mean, you can't even go to a hospital. I don't care, I mean, how much you know about medicine. If you don't have the tools, can't take care of anybody. If you have to be in a hospital and you have to bring your own water to take a shower and your sheets for a bed and your fan and you're in a hospital that doesn't even have centralized air conditioners, it's just, it's ridiculous. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. When did you get your United States citizenship? So I, I waited a long time, actually. I, I, I guess my plans, uh, I mean, I was saying that rush. I know I could get it after being married to them for five years, but I ended up doing it. I, I don't remember. I think it was like over 10 years that all of a sudden I started having changes with um, the kind of, uh, you know, social security uh, changes. And then it's like, you know, you better just do this now. They're increasing the, the price and the, the fees for all these things. Let's just have this done and, and you know, let's just move on. But that was something that I, I had no rush in doing, and I don't know why I was too busy having kids and, and, and learning again how to be a nurse. 
because it was like from day and night walking into a hospital here versus walking into a hospital there. So I had a lot of growing up to do, not just in language, but in profession and uh, society-wise. Um, it's completely different. So it, I have been in shock for like 20-something years now. Every morning I, I shock, I'm shocked about something different. <laughs> but I guess... Yeah. Yeah. You only live the the life that you're given. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, Nikki, I really appreciate your time. It's again, it's just, it's, and your story is one of thousands. Uh That's, that's the thing. And man, anyway, I really appreciate that that you are a human. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time. Yes. Good to see your face. uh, uh, (laughs) Nice seeing you. Thank you so much. Have a good one. Bye, everybody. Bye.